traveling through another dimension. A dimension not only of sight and sound, but of mind. A journey into a wondrous land whose boundaries are that of imagination. Your next stop, the Twilight Zone. In another dimension, the pilot episode of the Twilight Zone wasn't called Where Is Everybody? But it was called I Shot an Arrow Into the Air. Now of course we all recall the episode of the Twilight Zone called I Shot an Arrow Into the Air about the rocket ship that crash lands on a seemingly alien planet. But the pilot we almost got resembles that episode in name alone. This version concerned an intelligent young boy whose father was killed when his homemade rocket ship exploded. And because of this, the boy is somewhat of a laughing stock amongst his peers, so he tends to be quite a solitary soul. And as a result, while he's taking a walk alone one day in the woods, he finds a wounded alien and the two become friends. So the boy helps the alien and he's able to leave Earth in his spaceship and head for home. So because of this, the boy grows up inspired and succeeds where his father failed, in becoming an astronaut. And when he makes it into space, he again meets up with the alien who he helped in the woods. The title, I Shot an Arrow Into the Air, which came from the first line of a poem about friendship called The Arrow and the Song, seems to fit this story better than the episode that it actually ended up being the title of. But that's in another dimension. In this dimension, that version of I Shot an Arrow Into the Air is another example of Rod Sailing keeping something that maybe didn't quite work in reserve to give it another pass and make some use of it. But is the end product an improvement in this case? When police officer Sanchez brings the body of one of his colleagues back to town, he relays the story of what happened to the local telegrapher. To the prefect of police state capital. Prefect of police? Send it, Rodolfo, send it, don't censor it. Unidentified aircraft or something crashed into the hills north of our village late last night. Object is metal and circular. Officer Germano Salvador and myself investigated the scene of the crash. Found evidence of footprints and broken brush. Salvador followed same. I heard several shots. Found body of Officer Salvador. Say that I followed the figure of the monster in the darkness. I fired several shots. I believe I wounded whoever it... Whatever it was. So, a very short and concise way of setting up tonight's episode and telling us exactly what the basis of our story is. So who is the monster, where did it come from, and why is it here? And actually, is it a monster at all? 
let's find out when we open up the gift. The place is Mexico, just across the Texas border. A mountain village held back in time by its remoteness and suddenly intruded upon by the 20th century. And this is Pedro, nine years old. A lonely, rootless little boy who will soon make the acquaintance of a traveler from a distant place. We are at present 40 miles from the Rio Grande. But any place and all places can be the Twilight Zone. First broadcast on the 27th of April 1962. Written by Rod Serling and directed by Alan H. Minor. So, a one-time Twilight Zone director, and there's nothing particularly of note to me in his filmography. Steve Rubin has an entry on him in the Twilight Zone Encyclopedia, and he simply says, American television director, writer, and documentarian who helmed the gift. A native of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, Minor was a World War II combat photographer who, among other things, recorded the return of General Douglas MacArthur to the Philippines. He made his directing debut on The Black Pirates in 1954, an indie adventure film that co-starred Lon Chaney Jr. And then he goes on to mention several more of his projects too. So Sailing's opening narration, clearly a whip pan, and Martin Grams Jr. mentions in Unlocking the Door to a Television Classic that the episode itself was filmed on stage 24, but the sailing narration was filmed on stage 20. So clearly the whip pan strikes again, sailing isn't there on the set. But I think this whip pan is one of the better executed ones where you can kind of buy that they are just whipping to a different part of the room. And the narration itself is really just exposition, not much of that sailing poetry. But I do like the way he refers to Pedro in the room. He nods to him, and then the camera cuts to the boy. Who did it, Sanchez? This doctor, I do not know. Some, some giant thing was escaping in the darkness. I fired several shots, and later I found some bloodstains. They're sending some army men from the state capital. They will take over. Some giant thing? Not the darkness, or perhaps your fear? You doubt me, doctor? No, you're the law and order in this village, Sanchez. Be the sanity as well. You have frightened all these people. I just want to make sure that the source of the fear is not an illusion. Please, doctor. Is this an illusion? So here at the beginning, the officer Sanchez tells the doctor that this big creature was the one who set upon his fellow officer. And later on, when we see the creature responsible, we see that it's no such thing. So... I did wonder whether when it landed it was a creature and it has shape-shifted into the form of a man, or whether it was always a man and Sanchez is just exaggerating, because later on we also see that he is prone to self-aggrandizing, so I do think that's what he's doing here, I'm kind of of the mind that it was always a man and he's just exaggerating things. Now I'm going to divert early here to speak about Sanchez, the police officer who we've just heard speak, because he was played by an actor called Henry Corden, and you could watch his performance here and really not notice, but he is the voice of one of the most recognisable cartoon characters of all time. 
Corden is actually Canadian by birth and he moved to New York when he was a child. He had his start on radio and on stage and then he took to the screen with small and often uncredited parts. But he was a master of voices and dialects and while screen work never really gave him a starring role, a move to animation in the 60s gave him several. Now in 1960 there was a short pilot produced of a cartoon about a Stone Age family called the Flagstones and providing the voice of Fred Flagstone and also his neighbour Barney Rubble was a voice actor named Dawes Butler who voiced several of the most popular Hanna-Barbera cartoon characters of the time. Hiya Fred! And uh, what are you made up for? I'm gonna practice spear fishing. Oh, you can't lose. You'll either spear them or they'll die laughing. <laughs> How does it work? And don't point that thing at me. It's loaded. Oh, oops. But also in that pilot, providing the voice for Betty Rubble, was a voice actor named June Foray. And Twilight Zone fans will fondly remember June as the voice of Talky Tina and also she's in the final Twilight Zone from the original series, The Bewitching Pool, as Sport. Now June didn't go on to voice Betty Rubble in the show that would be made off the back of the Flagstones, and that show was of course, The Flintstones. So how does this tie into Henry Corden? Well Fred Flintstone wasn't voiced by Dawes Butler, the man who had gave him that voice in the Flagstones pilot, but in the main show it was an actor called Alan Reed, and when you watch the main classic Flintstones show, it is Reed that you'll hear in that six season run from 1960 to 1966. This looks like a good place to hide, Barney. Now you go climb to the top of that cliff and see if any cops are following us. I'll start collecting some branches. It's one of the rules in the contest I'm in. I'd suggest you get in the contest too, but you wouldn't have a chance. You're over the hill athletically. Your reflexes don't flex anymore. But after that original series ended, there were a multitude of specials, revivals, and so on and so on. But in 1977, sadly, Alan Reed passed away, and the man who took over the voice of Fred Flintstone was Henry Corden. And he carried the mantle of Fred Flintstone for about three decades from then on in the specials and video games and advertisements, and he carried on doing that even up to his death in his 80s. Do you ever wince when you see your old shows, or do you see them and feel a new sense of pride? Well, for the most part, we're very proud of the things we've done in the past. However, once in a while, don't you wince a little when you see things you've done 25 years ago? <laughs> oh, Brad, I think we were good then, and I think we're just as good now, today. I like us. This is actually my real horse. I'm putting this on for you guys, and I'm certainly putting it on for Fred. So back to our episode, let's take in the atmosphere for a moment and appreciate our surroundings. The episode was filmed on stage 24 of MGM Studios, so this is all fabricated. But similar to the episode The Grave, it has that beautifully decrepit and lived-in look about it. It's a far cry from the polished western sets of your Rance McGrews, 
and throughout the episode there is a more or less constant guitar music score that gives it a very melancholy vibe to it. And this is due to the score being provided by the famous Brazilian guitarist and composer Lorindo Almeida. And in a way the presence of his music is personified by the blind guitar player who we meet in the bar early on in the episode. And Twilight Zone fans will recognize him as Vladimir Sokolov, who we met in Dust and the Mirror. But sadly the day after he filmed this episode, he suffered a stroke and died, so he didn't live to see it on the screen. So the setup is interesting, this police officer getting killed in the woods by some creature. The set looks good, it's got a certain atmosphere to it. So where do we go from here? Doesn't have any friends, does he? Him? Yeah, why should he? He's a mind, like an old man. It's not normal. But go look for him out in the night and you'll see him standing there looking up at the sky. Did you ever see him smile? I ask you this. Did you ever see him smile? Why would he smile, the boy? What is there to delight him? His poverty? Why should he smile? So at around the six minute mark, we have this scene in the local bar where we have the blind guitarist who's really only in it for a moment. And then there's the doctor and the bartender, Manolo. And they speak about the boy. Now, if we think back to the opening, I said that this was potentially going to be a pilot for the Twilight Zone. But the thing is, in the early days of getting the show going, the plan still was that it would be an hour-long show. So that original screenplay was an hour-long. So this is a pared-down version of that. Now Martin Grams Jr. in Unlocking the Door to a Television Classic mentions some interesting stuff about the notes sailing got for that original script. And he writes that the pilot script had been submitted to CBS weeks before. On January 27, 1958, CBS received a script for censorship purposes and made minimal changes, most notably the deletion of the words damn, hell of a, in God's name and hell. This was not uncommon with the network's requests and Sailing had undergone this problem previously. The big problem, Sailing remarked for TV Guide, is still censorship in TV. Anything controversial is any subject with two sides. I've found censorship always begins with the network, then it spreads to the advertising agency, then the sponsor. Among them, when they get through, there isn't very much left. I've had script editors blue pencil the word God out of my scripts. There's no reason why profanity within reason should not be allowed on the networks after 10 o'clock at night. What the hell? English at least, American, is like that. And Grams also writes that crazy was deleted from one page because it was a trigger word and that the mental health people requested the network not use it in that sense. So I found that kind of interesting, especially the deletion of the word crazy. Now we've heard about light cursing being censored before, words like hell and really having to justify the use of the word God and so on. But deletion of a word like crazy, that's something that we would probably more think about today. You know, I'll speak a bit more about it later, but 
but in this world that we live in at the moment where there is a kind of ongoing examination of language and what people find offensive and what people don't find offensive but we kind of see it as a very modern thing but actually as Martin Grams Jr. writes there things like that were going on at the time too. So that's quite interesting but when we consider that this was a longer episode originally that does perhaps give me a clue as to why some things in the episode don't quite work for me. The small boy Pedro was played by an actor called Edmund Vargas and there's not a great deal to say about him as he only had a very short career. He was born in 1953 and his first credit was in 1959 but then there are only 11 credits to his name which end in 1965. So all that's left to talk about really is whether he's any good in this episode. And I have to say, unfortunately I don't think he is. And in the Twilight Zone Companion, Zikri mentions that even Buck Houghton said that he couldn't act at all. So it's hard to really feel anything for the kid when he has this very wooden robotic delivery. So we have Pedro, then we have the bartender Manolo, and we also have the Doctor. Earlier on we've had Sanchez, the police officer, and he's also played his part. And soon we'll have another character in the mix too. So all of these characters may have had more to do in the hour-long version, but I think in this version, maybe we have a character too many. The Doctor character is there to kind of be the conscience of the town, the good conscience, to balance things out against the more fearful townspeople who we'll see later on. And he reminds me of the Hennefy character in the Serling script A Town Has Turned to Dust that Rod Serling wrote for Playhouse 90. And in that, Hennefy was a reporter who came to town and, and didn't really have much of a part in what was going on but he was the one with the real sense of right and wrong and was removed from the mob. So he was kind of commenting from the sidelines. And I think the Doctor is similar in this, although he is involved a bit more. But then we have the bartender Manolo, who is a bit more self-serving. He's good enough to put the boy up in the back of his bar, but he also exploits him for labour as well. So these two characters are often in conflict, Manolo and the Doctor. But later on, the show is going to ask us to accept and become invested in the interactions between the boy and the character we'll meet in a moment called Wilson. So for me, the Doctor in this show seems surplus to requirements. If he'd have been taken out and just had Manolo left, and then some of the dialogue changed or even his character tweaked, I don't think it would have harmed the episode at all, in fact I think it might have given everyone else a bit more time to breathe and expand. So that other character that I mentioned now arrives at the bar where Pedro, the Doctor and Manolo are. Are you still open? I thought perhaps I could have some wine. Como estas? Bien. Please sit down, sir. I will get you wine. I'm sorry, senor, but the place is closed. We are closed now and no longer serving. There is a curfew. Is this not true, doctor? Is there not a curfew on? 
I won't stay but a moment. Just long enough for a drink of wine. Now, for some reason, when the character of Wilson turns up, Manolo seems to look at him with horror and dread, but there's nothing to really be horrified at. They have no idea who he is at this point, and you can't even see the gunshot wounds that he sustained from the police officers earlier on, so it doesn't really make any sense why Manolo would be so fearful of him. And then there's this moment where Manolo places a bottle of wine on the table for the stranger, but he only places it halfway onto the table and he drops it, but the bottle doesn't break. And then Manolo makes a comment about it not breaking, so it can't be wine. So this is all a bit confusing. Is it supposed to be some riff on turning water into wine? Or in this case, has Wilson turned wine into water? As we'll get to, sailing seems to be laying on some kind of Jesus Christ analogy in this episode. So is that part of the point of this? It doesn't really make much sense. And then when Manolo, who seems to be still inexplicably terrified, goes to run from the bar, and Wilson picks up the bottle of wine and clubs him over the head with it, and it's all just really clumsily staged, and, and people aren't acting in ways that make any sense. And if we're supposed to later get on board with Wilson being this misunderstood outsider, then having him club Manolo over the head with a wine bottle for seemingly nothing at all isn't really going to help his cause much. But at least this incident then prompts the stranger to tell us who he is. I must explain. Please. Please. Listen to me for a moment. I tried to explain before to that policeman or soldier or whoever it was I tried to tell him that I came in peace. He wanted to kill me. I tried to get the gun away from him. And it went off against his body. And then the man who came afterwards kept firing at me, please. Please. So as Manolo recovers from that blow to the head, let's meet the man who played him. Manolo was played by Cliff Osmond and this was only his third screen credit and he was around his mid to late 20s at this point. A big 6 foot 5 heavy set man and you would think that the way the business pigeonholes people, he was destined for a life of playing heavies and henchmen. And while that certainly happened in shows like Wagon Train, he was a consummate actor who loved the craft. He taught acting in Los Angeles and San Francisco and reportedly taught over 20,000 people over the years. He was also a writer and director, not massively so, but he kept his hand in that. And he wrote an episode of The Streets of San Francisco and he wrote and directed his own feature in 1988, called The Penitent. You'll be alright soon. The doctor has said so. He will make you all well again. It's very odd, Pedro. Very odd indeed. That there's only one person who feels neither fear nor anger. 
And this is a boy. It is because we are alike. You are a stranger, and in a way, I am a stranger too. Pedro, the poncho. What? In the pocket. Get it. It's a gift. Put it away. I'll tell you later on. So the stranger, or Wilson as he is known, is laid up in the back of the bar, and we have that exchange with him and Pedro. Now in Sailing's promo last week, he talks about a special relationship between the boy and this visitor, and I really think that's what the episode wants us to believe, that in this short time, these two have a kind of special connection to each other. The innocent child, the one who has no suspicion or bias or prejudice, sees the stranger for who he is. And this is all well and good, but with only a couple of scenes of them together, I don't think we ever really feel this bond. It takes Pedro himself to keep saying, we're the same because we're both outsiders, and the doctor to keep repeating to the boy later on, go and see your friend, your friend this, your friend will be fine, and so on. So we keep getting told that they were friends, and they had a special bond, but we never really saw it, or more importantly, I don't think we really feel it. So on the one hand, the episode doesn't allow the time for this bond to be apparent, but on the other hand, could a really good child actor have had the ability to sell this a bit more in the time they had? As I said earlier, Vargas is quite robotic and wooden in his delivery. There's never really any emotion or feeling there. So if we look at something like The Big Tall Wish, where there is this connection between a man and a boy, we tend to actually feel that as well as see it. So if this is supposed to be the core of the gift, then unfortunately it misses the mark. So as we come into the second half of the episode, the doctor decides to operate on Williams to remove the bullets from his body. And I know I said earlier that I didn't feel like the episode needed the doctor in it, and I still maintain that. This could have easily been written around. Wilson could have been wounded, and the bartender and Pedro had just been tending to his wounds, keeping him on a level. But the doctor is here, and he is tending to Wilson, so while he's being operated on, let's just briefly meet those two actors and I won't go into them too much because neither of them have a particularly standout biography and the doctor was played by Nico Minardos and he says in unlocking the door to a television classic I did some 30 movies over the years and a number of television and for all of those the Twilight Zone is the one I get more mail about I'm getting fan mail from Switzerland, Ireland, Germany as well as the United States in those years, we used to rehearse a couple of days and then film for three days. Rod wanted me to do the show, and what I remember most was the excitement we all had of the show. We knew it was an allegory to Jesus Christ, which was the premise, and everyone was trying to remain calm for the crowd sequence. So that was the Doctor, and then Williams, the alien, is played by the Argentinian actor Jeffrey Horn who doesn't have a huge amount of credits to his name either, only 41, but he did pop up in movies like The Bridge on the River Kwai, 
and TV shows like The Outer Limits and The Green Hornet. He was considered for the part of Ben-Hare in the movie of the same name, the part which Charlton Heston ended up getting, and perhaps being passed over for films like that did lead to some dissatisfaction with the industry, because he once said, I've lived my life expecting things to take care of themselves. I told myself that all I had to do was be a good actor. Believe me, that's not the way it works. While I was in there, I heard the door unlocked. Why? Oh, I've been out, doctor. I went out to tell Sanchez that when the army came, they, they would not have to go walking through the hills at night. They, they would only have to come here to find what they want. At your baptism, they forgot to give you a proper name. What would that be, Doctor? That would be Judas, Manolo. So let's address a particular aspect of the show. Clearly Rod Sailing is setting up the character of Wilson as a Jesus allegory. Earlier on, the bartender was accused of being Judas, a betrayer. So let's see where this takes us. I must get back to my ship, Pedro. See if I can repair it. And then I must leave. For good, senor? For good and all? Oh, no, Pedro. There's no such thing as for good and all. There is only forever. I will come back sometime. Or others like me. Where are you from? Is there a God? The same God, Pedro. I wonder. What? If God were to come to Earth, would they find him so strange? That they would be afraid? And would they shoot him? Did not his son come once, Pedro? And they nailed him to a cross. And then spent 2,000 years learning to believe in him. So the out-of-town police arrive and Sanchez and Manolo are fawning all over them and building up their own roles in all of this. You know, clearly if we are talking in biblical terms, then they are both guilty of one of the seven deadly sins, pride. And continuing the biblical train of thought, the police from out of town are like the Romans coming to take Jesus into their custody. Wilson is this misunderstood figure who is here to offer humanity a great gift, but is ultimately killed by them. And there may be more things in the episode too that I'm, I'm just not seeing. But it isn't particularly subtle, it really wears all this stuff on its sleeve. But then we get to this closing scene, where Wilson, who has fled from the back room of the bar, is stood in front of his persecutors, with his arms outstretched, in a very Jesus-like pose. And it's a case of not just being the straw that breaks the camel's back, it's a barn full of straw dropped on the camel from a great height. When I watched it, I just couldn't help but say, really, you really need to go there. Pedro, the gift. Show them the gift. Give it to the doctor. He will explain it to them. Destroy it. Burn it, burn it. It's the devil's work. Destroy it. It's the devil's work. Why did you do it? Why? Calm yourself. Pedro! Look out for the boy! Somebody stop him! He's a 
attacking the boy. He's going after the boy! Somebody stop him! He's attacking the boy! I've no problem with um, doing this Jesus allegory, but it's the subtlety that just isn't there. You know, it's it's just laid on so thick that when we talk of Twilight Zone being on the nose, I think this is one of them that really is. And what does it really do for us? I don't know. But examining these things, you know, faith, uh, fear, the fear of the townspeople, and picking this apart, I think is certainly valid stuff for the Twilight Zone to do, but I really question the execution here. Greetings to the people of Earth. We come as friends and in peace. We'll bring you this gift. The following chemical formula is a vaccine. It's a vaccine against all forms of cancer. That's all there is, the rest have been burned. We mentioned earlier on that the use of the word crazy was cut out of the script for fear of offending. And I was very interested to read Mark Zickri's comments about this one in the Twilight Zone Companion. And he says about the gift, it's pretentious, stereotypical and insulting particularly to anyone of Mexican heritage, with the exception of Pedro, the doctor and the blind guitar player, the people of the village are presented as superstitious, fearful peasants who prefer to see the alien as an agent of the devil rather than a friendly emissary from beyond the stars. So I'm interested in this for a couple of reasons. With the advent of online discourse, you only have to dip into social media to see that offence is a major topic of discussion, or rather the subject of many arguments. Sometimes a group, whether it be political, a person of particular gender, sexuality or nationality, it can be anything, will say that a certain thing offends them. And then there will be the opposition to that, where others will say, you shouldn't be offended by that, you're taking things too seriously, freedom of speech, political correctness gone mad, etc, etc. It's another part of online discourse that I find quite exhausting. So if we look at Mark Zickri's stance on this, you know, certainly as time goes on and societal norms change, sometimes entertainment can seem a bit dated in its outlook when we come back to it years later. So it does happen, but has it happened here? I think really I'd have to hear that from someone of Mexican heritage before I would really subscribe to Zikri's point of view on that. You know, I watched the episode and honestly, I never gave it a second thought and I didn't feel that it shortchanged people of Mexican heritage in any way personally. And the reason for that is it was speaking the language of the Twilight Zone. How many times have we seen something like this in the Twilight Zone before in a typical white American neighborhood? The people of Maple Street get themselves worked up over much less than this. They had a few lights go out and in a few hours the street is in chaos. 
In the gift, at least there is the actual killing of the policeman at the beginning that puts the town on edge. And then we look at episodes like The Shelter as well. Again, it's this mostly white American neighborhood apart from the one family. And they too get themselves all worked up into a frenzy. So I don't think sailing is negatively representing Mexican people. I think these aspects of fear and mob mentality are there throughout his work. Sailing is setting it in a Mexican village because of the remoteness of it and Wilson has to be an outsider for the story to work and they need to be quite isolated. So I suppose he could have set it somewhere in rural America but we've already had a mob mentality episode in rural America not so long ago with the rights of Jeff Myrtlebank. So again, you know, if someone of Mexican heritage told me that they found it to be offensive, I would certainly take that on board and hear their point of view on it. But as of now, I can't say that I really agree with Mark Zickery on that point. But the episode as a whole, you know, last time round we talked about the trade-ins and that is one of the less discussed Twilight Zones that I felt maybe should be more discussed. A bit of an underappreciated gem. But the gift, unfortunately, is a lesser discussed one where I can kind of see why this is the case. It's certainly not terrible, but I watched it a couple of times just waiting to see if all of its moving parts would click into place, settle down into a form that really delivered to me what Rod Serling so clearly wanted to get across. If we put aside the Jesus allegory aspect of it, you can get a good message from the episode. It's a regular sailing topic, humanity's treatment of the outsider, and in this case, it's about humanity cutting its nose off to spite its face. People's willingness to react more with fear and focus more on the negative aspects of the other, or the perceived negative aspects, even if they aren't true, when perhaps they should take the time to understand the other and take on board the good that they can offer. So that is a good message, but it's hard to really get behind that when the townspeople have a pretty legitimate reason for being quite wary of Wilson. As far as they're concerned, he's killed one of their police and with it being a small town, this is probably someone that they knew. Now certainly, the circumstances of that happening are a bit suspect and do play into the overall aspect of it, you know. We have no reason to disbelieve Wilson's story that the policeman pulled his gun on him and he was just trying to protect himself. But the townspeople don't know this, so of course they're going to be quite weary of him. Or at least that's how I did see it. I still maintain that this is not a great episode. It's not terrible, but it's definitely flawed. The relationship between the boy and Wilson doesn't really work. The Jesus allegory aspect I still think is pointless. And if we're talking about mob mentality, well, as far as the townspeople know, Wilson killed a police officer, then clubbed their bartender over the head with a bottle of wine. How can we blame them for their heightened emotional state? But then I remembered this comment from the doctor. Who did it, Sanchez? 
This doctor, I do not know. Some, some giant thing who escaped in the darkness. I fired several shots and later I found some bloodstains. They're sending some army men from the state capital. They will take over. Some giant thing? Not the darkness or perhaps your fear? You doubt me, doctor? No, you're the law and order in this village, Sanchez. Be the sanity as well. You have frightened all these people. I just want to make sure that the source of the fear is not an illusion. So I sat down and thought about this one again. And now for me, this isn't just another Twilight Zone about mob mentality. Certainly that is an aspect to it. But this time, Serling is examining it in another way. Later on in the episode, we see Sanchez fawning over the out-of-town police officer. Sanchez is a braggart. He's a blowhard. He wants to present himself in the best possible light, or at least in the light that brings him the most glory. So when we first meet him, he tells the story of their encounter with the alien in such a way as to make himself and the other officer, Salvador, look good in the circumstances. As far as he's concerned, it wasn't just an encounter with a man, it was an encounter with a monster. He may not have seen what happened with Salvador, but if we're to believe Wilson's story, he tried to reason with Salvador first, and then he reacted out of fear or something and tried to kill him. Now in the melee, Sanchez may have been a little behind in the chase, but in the deserted Mexican forest, I'm sure he still would have heard what was going on. But he doesn't come back and say that they had an encounter in the woods and things got a bit confusing and his colleague was killed in the confusion. He comes back and tells everyone that they encountered a monster and he implies that the monster killed Salvador. Now even if we give him the benefit of the doubt and say that he didn't actually see what happened, he's still letting the townspeople believe that this is what happened. And the doctor, who maybe knows that Sanchez is a bit of a braggart, calls him on it. He says, you're the law and order in this village, be the sanity as well. You've frightened all these people. I just want to make sure that the source of this fear is not an illusion. So in an episode that doesn't really work for me, that's its most powerful moment. And thinking about it further, does that absolve the villagers of their actions, this frenzied state that they work themselves up into? Absolutely not. Because the doctor doesn't do it, so why can't everyone else not do it? They still allow themselves to be carried along with this. But there is a difference from other Twilight Zones of the same kind. Ultimately, this isn't just about mob mentality. This isn't Maple Street where the people stand around and get themselves all worked up. This time, it's about the man who lit the fuse. It's about Sanchez, the man in authority who people trust and listen to, whose pride won't allow him to tell the truth and doesn't live up to his responsibility to be the sanity of the village too. Instead of coming back and saying, look, something's happened, I need to get to the bottom of it, please just stay calm and bear with me, he comes back and adds fuel to the fire. And then there's the snowball effect of that, the escalation that ends in tragedy, not just for Wilson, but for themselves. 
Because as the doctor says, they didn't just kill a man, they killed a dream. Because ultimately, after all this madness, after all this frenzy, where the man lies dead, then there is that inevitable moment of sobriety. So the genius of Rod Sailing, I think, is that this theme we've seen before several times on the Twilight Zone can be repeated and examined in a different way. But while I think the underlying message is a good one, I still think the execution was lacking. If we go back to Twilight Zone episodes like Dust that have had several different iterations, The Gift almost joined the list of Twilight Zones with multiple versions. Later on, when he was considering making a Twilight Zone movie, The Gift was one story that Rod Serling considered adapting for it. So perhaps that third pass would have been the thing that would have ironed out some of these rough edges that The Gift had. But sadly, we'll never know. So as is often the case with Rod Serling, even with those episodes that don't quite work, at the heart of it, there's still a lesson there, still something that we need to take notice of. Madero, Mexico. The present. The subject, fear. The cure, a little more faith. An RX off a shelf in the Twilight Zone. There we go, another Twilight Zone episode under our belt. I think we're coming up to the 100 episode mark, not for the Twilight Zone podcast, but for the Twilight Zone itself. So there's a few landmarks in our near future, the end of season 3 and episode 100, and after that, There will only be those 56 episodes left. I say only, it's took me this long to get that far, but but we'll see. Now, before we get to listener feedback, I just want to mention something. Sailing Fest in New York, that's happening in October, I think. But if you go to rodsailing.com, the tickets are now on sale for Sailing Fest 2019, the 60th anniversary of the Twilight Zone. So hopefully it'll be a good one. I'm sure it will. And I'm going, I know lots of Twilight Zone podcast listeners are going, I want to meet you all, you know, I don't know what involvement I will have with proceedings there, it'd be nice to get onto something, but even if I don't, sitting with fellow Twilight Zone fans and, you know, talking about the show, getting to meet you, that'll be a great thing, so so go to rodsailing.com if you think you might be able to make it, the tickets for the the days of the event, I think it's on for like three days or something, are very reasonably priced. Um, there is a bit of an itinerary there. I think the full one is yet to be released, but uh, when it is, we'll have it on the show. All right, so let's get to some listener feedback and submitted for your approval. Now, the summer's a bit of a busy time for me, and, uh, you know, as you know, because it's been a month since the last Twilight Zone podcast, so I can't recall whether I actually read this one, but I'm going to read it anyway, because it's only short, and it's, it's a pleasant little thing. It's from Ari, and he says, Thanks so much for the work that you do. The podcast started off very good, and has just been getting 
better and better. I enjoyed your analysis of 4 o'clock. I myself found the episode interesting, but less because of the story than because of its star. Theodore Bakel was primarily a folk singer, though he had many impressive acting credits on stage and screen. I grew up with one of his LPs which I listened to over and over as a child, even though I didn't understand Yiddish, which was the language of all the songs. I'm sure my mother loved this because listening to it kept me quiet for about half an hour. A few years ago I had the good fortune of attending a gathering of about 20 people in Minneapolis where Mr. Bikel sat with his guitar taking requests. He sang in many languages as he often did and the audience had a great time. No Twilight Zone insights that night, alas, just good music. Thanks again for dedicating so much time and energy to one of my favourite shows. Greetings from your friend in the wilderness of Minnesota. And that was Ari. Ari, I can't recall if I read it before, but that's nothing down to you. That's just me and my busy life and uh, terrible memory. But hey, it was worth reading twice if, it, if I've read it before. So thanks for your email, man, and thanks for your recollections. Okay, I've had an email from Andy, and you know, sometimes I like to read out people's recollections of The Twilight Zone too. If you're new to the podcast, what I tend to do is if someone emails me and says, hey, great show, then I send them an email back saying thank you, and so on. But if someone has kind of recollections or comments about the episodes, then I tend to include them. And Andy wrote to me and he says, Tom, Andy here, long-time listener and fan of the show, been with you since almost the beginning of the journey. I think I first joined you for walking distance. I apologise for not writing in sooner. I know I should have kids, family, career. I have a million excuses, but I'm finally writing now. Well, Andy, don't worry about it, man. You know, the thing is, with any podcast, 99.9% of the people will never get in touch. But, you know, I'm just gratified that people enjoy the show there are thousands out there who who listen to it now and if it makes anyone's day better then that's enough from me he says i cannot overstate how much i owe you a debt of gratitude for creating this wonderful thing that allows me to celebrate this show i've loved since childhood i'm a 40 year old man now and as i've moved through life the twilight zone has remained a constant relationships have come and gone careers have changed things fade but I've held Zone close to my heart for 30 plus years now. It's always been exactly what I need. I know you've addressed this several times throughout the podcast, but something I've truly come to appreciate is that the Twilight Zone has grown up with me. As a 12-year-old boy, I loved to serve man, the invaders, the fear. In some ways, I think that Zone may have served as a gateway to a love of the horror genre in later teen and adult years but the zone never left me. As I got older, other episodes began to be more poignant to me. Maple Street, The Shelter, A Big Tall Wish. Those are the ones that shaped the adult that I came to be. And now as I turn the corner into middle age, a stop at Willoughby carries a specific weight and measure that I did not and could not recognise as a 12-year-old boy. As I write to you now, that is my favourite episode. Good choice, man. I, you know, I think it might be mine too. But enough of that. The real reason that I write you this is, like you, I've been quietly saving and squirreling away extra funds every paycheck in order to make the pilgrimage to Binghamton this year. 
and I've finally done it. As I write this letter to you, I've booked a flight, reserved a hotel, and bought my Sailing Fest 2019 ticket. Yes, good man. And he says, Tom, you must allow me to buy you a beer. I hope I owe you that at least for all you've done for me over the last five years. Maybe I owe you a few. Be well, sir. Thank you for everything you do. Hope to see you in Binghamton. And that is from Andy. Andy, I'm so happy that you have decided to make the journey. Seek me out, you know. Absolutely, I would encourage anyone who's going who wants to say hi, seek me out because I would love to meet you. It, be, it would be my honour to meet you, so let's do it. Okay, a quick email from Bill and he says, Hello, I've been thoroughly enjoying your podcast. I recently rewatched the show on Netflix. Love the information and views on this classic show as well as the interviews and looks into the comics, the movies, and other Twilight Tones. I was writing about Nothing in the Dark episode as you and other viewers were wondering why Death called the old woman Mother at the end. That was something I overlooked, but now that you have brought it up, I think I may know why. I recall my grandfather calling my grandmother Mother all the time, and I believe my eldest uncle did it, or does it occasionally as well. After hearing your show, I asked my dad and he confirmed that it was a term they used. My dad didn't know if this was a regional thing. They came from South Dakota, then to Southern California, or it was used across the country or the world, but it seemed to die out. Sorry that isn't more exciting, but I do love your show, and that's from Bill. Hey man, it's exciting enough. You know, anyone who wants to chime in on things we might have missed or things that I wasn't sure about, the door is always open, so thanks for writing in, man. Okay, long-time friend of the show, Stephen, has written in. Now, I know, Stephen, you don't always write just to uh, get your thoughts on the show. Sometimes you just want to shoot the breeze, but there's something that you mentioned here that I think is worth reading about. He said, Hi, Tom. I haven't listened to your podcast for a few months because I don't have access to the new Twilight Zone. I'll watch them when they're available on DVD and then listen to your podcasts. I'd like to know how you compare the new Twilight Zone to the original series. Does the new series have that distinctive Twilight Zone feel to it? Are the stories and scripts smart and thoughtful? So Stephen, um, here's the thing. You know, I'd kinda been glad to put new Twilight Zone to bed, to be honest. It was quite a hectic time kind of stressful in its own way um so you know i, I was glad that we we kind of got past it but the fact that you've asked the question i think is a pretty valid thing because you know i spent those episodes immersed in it talking to the people who were following along if you like the people who are watching the show and i never really provided a kind of spoiler free overview of what i think of the show for people who may be didn't have access to it or were waiting for the dvd like you that kind of thing so that's something that i that i never really did so although although i'm happy to put new twilight zone to bed for the moment i i thought it was worth acknowledging your email for that reason but in answering it i'm going to read out part of another email from another friend of the show who i've not heard from before and her name is caitlin so I'll just read out part of her email and she says, I've had mixed feelings about the new 2019 series as so many and possibly every one of us, meaning Twilight Zone fans, I feel like we're a close-knit team, has had. 
I'm an originalist, not a real word, in the sense that I usually like to see great original things stay the way they originally were. I don't even like to refurbish certain things for fear it will take away from their authenticity. It was a funny thing that happened. I recently got almost up to date on your podcast. Now it was up to the new 2019 series, What Do I Do? I don't want to stop listening to your podcast. So I decided that based on what I've heard opinion-wise from you and your other frequent guests, that I would give it a try, three months after it had been released. Your thoughts and someone's comment about it seems like what Twilight Zone would be today if it hadn't ever stopped, or something along those lines, is what broke me down. Your show encouraged me to watch the new season, and I'm glad I did, because I was able to have a different viewpoint and wasn't so upset anymore that they were trying again to bring back something that so obviously couldn't be. I've only heard the name Jordan Peele once or twice in something called Key and Peele, which I don't know a single thing about. In a way I'm glad because I didn't have to separate myself from the comedian Peel and this sailing-esque Peel. The most fun thing about this new series for me is it's brand new. There's no surprising me in the original Twilight Zone. I've seen every episode a bunch and can predict every ending. The positive reinforcement about Peel being a good narrator for this show really helped me go into the new episodes positively and I'm able to enjoy it as brand new and unknowing. So thank you, Caitlin, for your email. It was longer, and uh, I'll just read that part because, you know, you said some really lovely things, but I think you're right on point about something that I wanted to mention in response to Stephen. You know, New Twilight Zone, uh, in a in a spoiler-free way for me, was summed up in a lot of what Caitlin said. For me, it was like, okay, if the Twilight Zone never went off the air and it just evolved over time, no one would have a complaint about New Twilight Zone existing because it would always have been with us. And, you know, let's say there was a point where Rod Sailing left and another creator took over. We would have a show where there would be eras of the show and some people like certain eras, some people don't like certain eras, and so on. Now, my benchmark for that is something like Doctor Who that never went off the air for decades, and the show just evolved, and it was a lot easier for people to come to terms with those changes. Now, I realise that Twilight Zone is a little different because it is so heavily identified with sailing, but... I was always open to it anyway, but I think what Caitlin said there about how she was so trepidatious about it, but then she thought, well, you know what, I'm just going to view it like that. Imagine if it had never went off the air and it just carried on. And that's what it was like for me. So the thing is, I'm not going to say, Stephen, I I think you're really going to dig it because I just can't call how people react to it. Um, There are people who I thought would like it, who don't like it, and there are people who I didn't think would like it, who do like it. So I really can't call it, and we've all got this different kind of thought about what makes Twilight Zone Twilight Zone for us. And the reactions across the web were were so... I'm going to say varied, but there was a lot of venom out there as well. But I've come to think that now 
that's just online discourse about anything. You know what I mean? You see it about Star Trek. You see it about Doctor Who. It's an unfortunate aspect of fandom that this this venomous response is always there. You know, it, it, it's rare that someone says, you know, I tried it. It wasn't for me. If you like it, good for you. You you keep on enjoying it. I'm just going to stick with the original show, which which would be my point of view, really, if I didn't like the new show. So you're asking whether it captures the theme of the original, the sort of feeling of the original. It depends what you're looking for, but in terms of the reboots, this is the only time where I've genuinely felt that I'm watching The Twilight Zone. Now, there was criticisms about it's too political, it's too this, it's too that. I didn't really subscribe to that criticism myself. I don't, I don't personally think it was. Some people made that point very eloquently, others not so much. But for me, it was tackling topics of the day. I thought it tackled them very well. There was a couple of occasions where it was, I mean, like this episode too, you know, I felt it was too on the nose with the whole Jesus thing. I felt there were a couple of episodes where the message was just a bit too explicit. It was like, come on, just dial it back a little bit. But that was like, you know, two episodes out of ten. So for me, I was fine with that. You know, again, some people thought the messages were too political. I just thought, well, I would personally blame the kind of world we live in for that, rather than the show itself, that a lot of things are now pulled into the political sphere, which is very unfortunate because then they tend to be apportioned to one side or the other when these topics I don't think should be really something that is divided up on party lines, if you like. So I'm starting to ramble now, Stephen, but I think it's certainly worth a watch, whether you will enjoy it or not. I'll be interested to, to find out, you know. I really enjoyed it. I can't wait to get the Blu-ray when it comes out. I think they, they've done a great job. I do think maybe by the end of it, I did kind of get message fatigue, you know, even though I had no problem with the way they presented it, by the end I was kind of like, all right, you've done this now, and I don't think it's ever going to be taken out of the next season, I don't think they're going to stop with these message shows, with, with these hot button topics, but I think now it's time to maybe introduce other aspects of the Twilight Zone. Um, maybe some things that are a bit more fantastical this one was kind of down to earth but you know the limits are imagination itself and, and i hope they start to explore those limits so you know i'm not sure that was a great help to you um but all i can say is i really enjoy the new show and and i hope you do too i think it's worth just letting yourself sit back and manage your kind of expectations like Caitlin has and just acknowledge that, you know, the Twilight Zone is a is a unique experience in and of itself. But you're never gonna truly replicate that. But if it had never went off the air, then it would have naturally evolved anyway. So, you know, just be open to what this new show does differently, as well as enjoying what is the same so i hope that answers your question Stephen, in some way at least 
Okay, I've rambled a bit long. So Stephen, he does make some comments about the trade-ins, which I won't go into now, but he does say, the trade-ins reminds me of a season five episode. Number 12 looks just like you. At your current rate, you might need a new body to get to that episode. Grow old with your audience, Tom, the best is yet to be. Thank you, Stephen. You know, um, I, uh, I am very aware of that, you know, and going forward, I am very mindful of the diversions that I sometimes take. On the one hand, I think they're good, but on the other hand, part of me is thinking to just plow through with the episodes so it doesn't take another 10 years to do them. But then an opportunity will come up and I'm like, I can't not take that opportunity. So I'm very undecided on that one, but anyway, thanks for writing in, man. Talking of New Twilight Zone, if you listen to the listener feedback shows, then you will have heard from our next commentator. It's Harold from Texas. Take it away, Harold. Hey there, Tom. Harold Clark reporting in from Buda, Texas, talking about the gift. So this episode is really about two things, fear and faith. And I actually think that this would be one of the episodes that would have been better at 40 minutes long as opposed to 22, uh, just to give a, a little bit uh, longer time for the, for the villagers to actually build up to the sphere, the fear of the, of the outsider, the, the stranger uh, with the gift. Um, you know, it does kind of come on kind of fast, and if, if they could have had a little bit more of a slow burn and, and maybe have do some other things with the with Mr. Williams where, you know, you're not quite sure if he's telling the truth or what the deal is. Maybe maybe he does some healing or something like that, um, you know, to, to make some people start to believe, but other people think it's, you know, you know crazy stuff. Um, so, you know, uh, like I said, it, you know, in 22 minutes, you can only tell so much story, you know, if you want to get to the to the end. And speaking of the end, you know, it talks about, um, you know, they, the the fear over you know overcame you know the faith and if they just had some faith you know that's what Serling says the cure the subject fear the cure a little more faith you know faith is an interesting thing because you know even if even if they didn't burn the uh, the vaccine uh, whatever whatever that vaccine happened to be the the chemical compounds or whatever even if they didn't burn it there would still be people that would read it and say, ah, you know, that's just, that's just words on a piece of paper. That, that doesn't, that doesn't mean anything. And then even if you put those, that formula into action and next thing you know, you know, cancer's being cured, there would still be people that would say, nah, it wasn't that, you know, it was something else, you know? So, you know, again, faith is a funny thing. You think, you think, oh, if you ju- if you could just see this, or if you could just hear that, or feel this, you would believe. But you now, for some, that's not even the case. Um, as they are, they just you know, they they guess they just can't give up the the idea that maybe they don't know everything or they're not in control. Um, so anyway, but uh, the gift overall for me, it's probably in the of the. You know, 156 episodes, probably in the in the lower half, not not bottom of the barrel. Just it's one that I don't come back to a lot. You know, I think it's interesting that it's he uh, Serling decided to set it in a 
in a Mexican setting, um, I, I guess you could do the same thing maybe in some backwoods part of the U.S. as well. So I don't know. Maybe he just wanted to use some Spanish scenery or some Spanish sets. Who knows? One last thing. Sometimes being subtle actually creates more talking points for the subject you're trying to get across. Uh, in this, in, in the gift, uh, you know, the, the the Christian ideas are brought up, you know, pretty strong. You know, I mean, it's pretty clear the parallels that, that they're trying to make here. Um, whether that's effective or not, you know, that's to each each their own, I guess. But for me... I think, and actually a much better episode, my favorite episode, actually, uh, that does this in a very subtle way is actually in season five, uh, The Old Man in the Cave. Um, again, when we get to that, I will have much to say on that episode, but that, that again, just has a lot more stuff that you can dig into without explicitly stating anything. So you, you can really dive into it and really pluck some things out of that. Um, so anyway, so, you know, the gift kind of, you know, middle of the road episode. Um, real quick, I just wanted to make one comment for last week's episode, The Trade-Ins. I hadn't watched that episode in a long time. And the thing that struck me was I actually found it refreshing that there was nobody in that episode that had ulterior motives or evil intentions you know, the, the the salesman was just right up front saying, this is the rules. I'm not trying to cheat you out. When he goes to the poker game, you know, the, the gangster dude or whatever you want to call him is like, man, takes pity on the guy and says, you know what, just take what you left and go. And I'm not going to I'm not going to, you know, inflate my ego anymore. So that was actually refreshing to see that in the Twilight Zone where nobody takes advantage of nobody. So. Anyway, well, uh, thanks again for uh, doing the podcast, Tom. And again, I look forward to uh, hearing what your comments are on this episode. I'll talk at you later. Bye. It's good to hear from you, Harold. And it's good to hear from, you know, you are one of the 10 for 10 club on New Twilight Zone. And it's good to hear you talking about a classic episode too. I think there's a lot in common, you know, with, with what we think about this episode. Maybe it was too explicit in... Uh, the the faith aspect of it I don't think it was particularly needed at all I think the underlying message to that was actually the the best part of it for me the whole you know the mob mentality aspect with this extra sort of layer that sailing put in about the responsibility of those in positions of authority to not use that position to be incendiary and you know kick things off rather be you know on the level and be the sanity that a place needs so i thought that was a very interesting thing about it but um thanks for writing in harold man it's always good to hear from you and i'm sure we'll hear from you again soon okay so i've rambled long enough now if you want to get in touch with me then the email address is tom at the twilightzonepodcast.com and you can get your thoughts onto the show uh, if you send an email I will either read it or read parts of it, but if you send in audio feedback in the form of an MP3 or even a phone recording, then I will play that on the show. So, I just want to thank a few people who have become patrons of the show at patreon.com slash twilightzonepodcast. We just heard from a Caitlin Swiderski, 
And you are now the sponsor of Tom Elliott Reads 4 O'Clock, so thank you for that. Jocelyn Thomas, you are the sponsor of 4 O'Clock, the actual episode, so thank you. Uh, Harold Nomi, you are the sponsor of a real classic, Nothing in the Dark, so thank you, Harold. Uh, Brian Lund, you are the sponsor of Blairy Man, the finale of the new show. Certainly an interesting episode, so I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, Philip Galbo, now Philip has been a sponsor on Patreon for a long time now, but as I've said, sometimes, you know, it's a busy old life and I'll get things mixed up and I never gave him the credit he deserved when he first took it out. So here's the sponsor of the trading. So thank you, Philip. And then finally, our good friend Fief Sutton, you are the sponsor of this very episode, The Gift. So thank you for signing up, man. I appreciate it. Okay, iTunes reviews, I think I, I really got behind on. I can't recall what I was up to, so I'll just say thank you to the following people. Jake Nuka, Bob from Evanston, Illinois, Chris Siska, Tromblaster, Luca Keiju, Southport SS, Dr. Samson, LDS PPA 2003. Thank you. Thank you for your five stars. I appreciate it. It helps get the show out there. So that's enough from me. Let's go over to Rod Sailing to find out what's coming up next. I'm kind of looking forward to this one. So here he is. And now, Mr. Serling. Next week on The Twilight Zone, a return visit from an illustrious young actor, Cliff Robertson. He stars in one of the strangest tales we've got to throw at you. It's called The Dummy. And it involves a ventriloquist and a piece of painted wood, a unique slab of carved pine who decides that lap sitting is for the birds and who takes things into his own wooden hands. Now this one we recommend to the voice throwers across the land. We hope we see you then. You know, it's only a short hop from the Twilight Zone to Dodge City and Gunsmoke. Saturday nights over most of these stations. <laughs> 